Amen. Well, Revelation chapter number three tonight. Revelation chapter number three. Revelation chapter three. We'll be there in a minute. Some of you are going to notice I have a, a brace on my knee, so I'm just going to get this out of the way. Um, if you're nice like Miss Katie, you're going to feel sorry for me. But I'm going to tell you, don't feel sorry for me. I totally deserve what happened, so I'll just leave it there. If you want the story, I'm now charging $5 to tell people the story. If you've been injured, you, have, you absolutely know what I'm talking about. You have to tell the story a million times, but um, I'm okay. I'm not even in pain. In fact, I tried to get out of wearing the brace, but the physical therapist people are mean, and they wouldn't let me, so... Here I am preaching with a brace on, but that, if that's the worst that happens, I think my life is pretty good. Uh, Revelation chapter number three, um, every time I preach, I hope to dive into this uh, text a little bit more. We've been talking about the letters to the seven churches in Revelation two and three, and hopefully if you're like me, you found out, hey, these churches existed 2,000 years ago, but there's a lot for me there, and I hope the same can be said tonight. We're going to be looking at the letter to the church at Sardis. The church at Sardis, so we're going to be covering the first six verses of chapter number three. About five years ago, I believe, um, a man named Tom Rainer, if, if you read anything about church leadership or have heard of any sort of blogs like that, or maybe they've popped up on your Facebook feed, Tom Rainer's a pretty popular author in that realm. I know most of you, that's like the least fun thing to do on your day off is read a book on church leadership, but he wrote a really famous book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And Tom Rainer's what in the church world they call a consultant, and he often comes in these churches that need a lot of help, and uh, he goes in and, and talks to these people, tries to help them, and he does a lot of research and statistics and such like that. And in his book, he made the case, and I want you to listen to this and think about the consequences of this number. He said that there are 100,000 churches per year that are in a state of what he calls accelerated decline. Now think about that. 100,000 churches, that's not 100,000 people. There are dozens of people represented by those churches. Probably most of those would be 100 people or less. But you're talking about uh, 10 million people represented there by 100,000 churches that are in what he calls accelerated decline. And in his book, he gave nine signs of a dead church. And I'm going to read these nine signs to you, and I'm going to kind of turn it on us here in a minute. Uh, but he, he wrote this. These are nine signs of a dead church or a dying church. Number one, the past is the hero. You ever been in a church like that? The church refused to look like the community. The budget moved inwardly. I can remember vividly some er, messages pastors preached about making sure our focus is not on ourselves, but on our community and reaching the lost. Most of their money, some, in some cases, 98% of their money was spent on themselves. The Great Commission, this is number four, became the Great Omission. I, I remember times pastors said, if we... The day we stop becoming a missions-minded church is the day we start dying. Tom Rainer said the same thing. Number five, they became preference-driven. Number six, pastoral tenure decreased. 
Number seven, the church rarely prayed together. Number eight, the church had no clear purpose. And number nine, the church obsessed over the facilities. What strikes me most is not even those nine, although those nine can be convicting in really almost any life cycle of a church. But five years after he wrote that book, which would have been this year, uh, just a few months ago, he wrote a follow-up article to that. And of course, when you write a book like that, that is such a best-selling book like what he wrote, you get a lot of feedback from people who are like, hey, you're right on, or they share their stories. And he said the number one thing he learned as he interacted with people who were part of dying churches was this, that most members of dying churches didn't see it coming. Now, church, I want you to think about that because it's really easy for us to read the passage in Revelation chapter number three about a dying church, a dead church. And, I mean, you come here on a Wednesday night and there's well over 100, 150 people here and to say, well, that's not us. And I would agree with you, okay? But I think we all ought to take heed to what God said in this passage because here's the reality if you thought your church was dying, it probably wouldn't be dying because you would do something about it. Most members don't see it coming. And here's what we need to grasp, grasp tonight, because a lot of times when we talk about church-wide type things, it's hard for us to identify because, well, I'm not the pastor, I'm not in charge of ministries. And here's the, the principle I think that's been at the foundation of this entire study is it doesn't really matter what the church culture is as a whole, whether healthy or unhealthy. Here's the truth. Dying churches are made of dying members. And spiritually declining churches are made up of spiritually declining members. And so let's not exempt ourselves because we say, well, Fellowship Baptist Church isn't dying. I agree with you. But maybe, maybe we could look into our own hearts. And we could ask ourselves the question, is there something about my spiritual life that rather than growing is declining? Can we ask ourselves that question tonight? That instead of looking around us and saying, well, the problem doesn't exist in this church, maybe instead of doing that, God would have us to look inside our own hearts and say, is there an area in my life in which I'm declining? So I want to restate the same things Tom Rainer gave in his book. Instead of talking about the church, I want to redirect them at you and at me. Can I do that? Let me give you those nine. I took out the pastoral tenure one because that doesn't uh, apply. Here are eight signs of a declining church member. Number one, our best days living for God are in the past. Number two, you rarely engage with people who don't know Christ. Number three, your giving toward the church has been stifled or is non-existent. Number four, your fo sorry, the great commission has become the great omission. You rarely, if ever, reach someone for Christ. Number five, your focus in church is driven by preferences. Number six, you rarely pray. Number seven... Your purpose in life does not match up with God's purpose for your life. And number eight, this one's convicting to me, you obsess over things that don't matter in eternity. Can maybe all of us agree tonight that perhaps the message might apply to our own lives? Listen, I, I feel like I'm in a good place spiritually, but some of these convict me a lot. 
And maybe tonight, instead of looking at the letter to the church at Sardis and saying, well, that doesn't apply to me, can we do this tonight? Can we have a word of prayer? And, and I'll pray. But I, I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to ask God to help you lay aside any pride in your heart and to lay aside any justification and to just ask God to speak to you. You could be the healthiest church member in here tonight, and I believe God could challenge you tonight. Can we do that together tonight, church? Let's pray. Father, I, I, I beg you and I ask you, God, Lord, that you would do something. You'd help us. We're not here in the rain and after a busy day of work and as many are getting ready for school. We're not here out of routine. God, we want to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray you would use it tonight. I really do. And God, I pray that you help us to lay aside any pride, any justification. God, that we wouldn't make the past the hero. That we would look at ourselves and see ourselves the same way you see us. And God, we'll thank you if you convict us and challenge us tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's what I want you to look at in verse number one. Is that spiritual decline and death are, are things usually we don't see coming. I want you to look at verse number one of chapter number three. I want you to see how Jesus starts this letter to this church. He says, um, unto the angel of the church at Sardis, write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Pay attention to the next phrase. I know thy works, and pay attention to this, that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. You know what Jesus is saying there is that in the eyes of the church community at large, no one would have looked at the church of, at Sardis and said, well, that's the dead church. No, he's saying that you have a reputation, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And I think all of us could agree tonight that it's really easy to put on a show and act like that we're something that we're not. But let me remind you tonight that there are times when Jesus walks into the room and he looks at us and he sees something that even we can't see for ourselves. I, I, I'm going to use some knee illustrations just because it's fresh in my life. Is that okay? Um, I remember I, I hurt my knee two weeks ago and by Sunday, it was a Wednesday, by Sunday I felt fine. In fact, most of you didn't know I was injured until I had to wear this dumb thing. And, and my knee was fine, and I felt like I was okay. And then I walk into the doctor's office, the Dr. Greason in Garden City, who has a really good reputation for this type of thing. And I was smart enough to know, I've heard stories of people who walk on a bad knee, and they think it's okay, and then they're all messed up. So I didn't want that to be me. And I walk into the doctor's office expecting to say, oh, you have a minor sprain. And the guy told me to my face, you tore your ACL. Now, if you know knee stuff, that's bad. You, have, you get cut open if you get your ACL torn. Turns out I didn't tear my ACL, but I had a very major sprain on what's called your PCL. And again, I felt fine, but as I talked with the doctor, he didn't seem like it was like a light thing. He's like, you need to wear this brace for two months and go to therapy. And I thought, man, I'm not feeling anything. And then I talked to Nick, who's a who works in a physical therapy department, and he, I didn't wear my brace on the Quilts of Valor Wednesday, and he rebuked me. And I found out real quickly that while I didn't feel like anything was wrong, the doctor came in the room, and he saw something that I didn't. 
And sometimes we get so deceived and we justify ourselves so much that we think everything's okay. But can I ask you tonight to allow Jesus to walk into your life and to look into your life and examine it with his word and with his Holy Spirit. And I hope tonight that God will show you something that maybe you didn't see for yourself. We're going to look at what Jesus wrote to what I call the dying church. This is his letter to the dying church. And here's what we're going to cover tonight. Because if you look at the letter that he wrote, really there are four major commands that Jesus wrote to the dying church. There are just four commands that he gives there. And I like to think of it, again, pardon the knee illustration, as like a rehab plan. He's not even really trying to diagnose the issue. He already named them as a dead church. And so he's going to give them four commands that if they would obey these four commands, they could get back on a path to being alive and well for Jesus Christ. So here's the first one tonight. Number one, be watchful. Be watchful. Look at verse number two. I don't know why I had you look. It just says this two words. Be watchful. That's, that's all that's there. Be watchful. Now, when I look at that word, I did some study on this. The idea there is vigilance. Understanding that you are always under attack. Now, I think Jesus, I don't think Jesus would have used this term, but I think he's throwing a little shade at the church at Sardis. Some of you millennials know what I'm I'm saying. He's throwing a little shade because the, the city of Sardis actually had a history of losing major battles because they weren't watchful. Now, the, church, uh, the city of Sardis was a major stronghold in the Roman Empire. And at one point, they were one of the strongest military areas. In fact, they were so strong, they decided they were going to go head-to-head with the Persian Empire, like the big dogs. And they were doing great until someone, some person who wasn't very smart, left this area of their wall totally unwatched. And some guy from the Persian army climbed up the wall and opened the gate. He didn't even have to hide in a Trojan horse. The guy just climbed the wall and opened the gate. Now, I would feel bad for him, but that happened twice. Twice! They weren't watchful. And so here's this city that's literally owned by another empire because of the very fact that they didn't look around themselves and they didn't realize the danger that was at hand. They weren't vigilant. They weren't observant. They didn't understand the danger that was lurking around them. I think sometimes we as Christians have the same struggle. I love what one writer said. He said that this this command, this idea of watchfulness means it speaks to Christians who've reduced their commitment to Christ and have allowed themselves to be seized by things of lesser value. That they've gotten their eyes off of Jesus and they've become captured by something far less than who Jesus is. We could use this term. They're distracted. How many of you know what it's like to be spiritually distracted? How many of us could say that there are times in our lives where instead of our attention being arrested by honoring God, we've been distracted by excelling in a sport, by impressing a person, by building a resume, by impressing our boss, 
And we could go on and on and on, aren't there church times where instead of being focused on God, instead of being focused on honoring him and the spiritual battles that, is at, that are at hand, we become distracted by things that mean so much less. And here's the truth tonight, church. When you become distracted, listen tonight, when you become distracted by lesser things, you open the door to temptation. Distraction is the doorway to the devil's attacks. And here Jesus is speaking to this church at Sardis that had become focused on a lot of lesser things. We're not told what they are, but they were in this state of spiritual decline for the very reason that they stopped focusing on God and they started focusing on things that didn't matter so much. Would you agree that our, our default state is to be oblivious to spiritual danger? I mean, come on, let's be honest. I don't wake up every morning thinking about how Satan wants to attack me and how sin wants to get into my life and ruin my life. Anyone else here as unholy as I? I don't wake up with that awareness. That's not my default state. I don't think it's yours either. Our natural tendency is to wake up and just focus on the things at hand and the things of this earth and to become captured by jobs and household duties and tending to kids, which none of that's bad. But listen, if we just go about life, we become oblivious to the attack that Satan wants to render in our lives. And I don't know how else to change that state, but I do know the one thing that makes me more vigilant the one thing that helps me see my world as God sees it, the one thing that helps me to be aware that I should be honoring God, the one thing that gives me some vigilance about my life and allows me to filter out some bad things, that one thing is prayer. That's the only thing that helps me. And so, church, if you're struggling with this, if, if this speaks to you tonight, you want to know the solution? You need to spend more time in prayer. Why? Because prayer aligns our world with God's. It aligns our mindset with God's. It helps us to reframe our mindset and see our world around us the same way that Christ sees it. Number one, be watchful. Here's number two. And this one really speaks to me. Be urgent. Be urgent. Look at verse number two. It's more than just two words, so we can look at it. it see, he says, be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. The idea here is urgency. Here, here's what Jesus sees when he's looking in there. He sees a lot of what, like, what my doctor saw. He saw something that was sprained and was about ready to snap. He sees something that is in a really bad situation. There are some things, he doesn't use a specific noun, I'm assuming that there were a lot of aspects of their spiritual lives that were ready to die. They were not in a good place. And he says, I've looked into your life, I've looked into your church, and I can see multiple areas. He says, I've not found thy works perfect before God. Now what does that mean? Well, I don't think it means that God expects perfection out of us. I think that's his standard, but I think God's smart enough to know that none of us are perfect, right? But what the idea there in that passage is saying is that God has a standard, and where they were at in these different areas was so far off of what God intended that they were about ready to die as a church, spiritually speaking. So God expects us as Christians to be loving 
and to be sacrificial in a way that reflects Christ. But when you looked at the church at Sardis and the people in it, they were argumentative. They were petty. They were bitter. And they were selfish. God has a standard for our lives to be filled with faith, meaning that we assess life not just by humanistic characteristics, but we look at life through the lens of what God has already said. And when what God has said contradicts what the world says, we just go with what God says. That's faith. And instead of having that level of life, God looked into this church and he saw people that only assess things by what the world saw. They never took God into account when they made decisions. They never tried to trust God. If it, if it didn't seem like it was out there in front of them, they couldn't believe that it was true. And so their faith was severely lacking. God has a standard for serving one another. And yet they fell short. They were self-interested. They were driven by preferences. They only cared about themselves. God had a standard of holiness, and maybe they had fallen short of that. And they'd allowed sin and immorality to creep into their lives, much like the other churches we had talked about. And here's what God is doing. He's looking in their situation, and he's saying, you need to do something about your situation now. And you need to be urgent because if you don't strengthen the things that remain, they are going to die. And I can't help but wonder if maybe God has a message for somebody tonight that you need to get on with God's program. That the God has been speaking to your life and God has been working in your heart and you procrastinate. How many of you have done that? Come on now. I know I have. God has spoken to me. And God has challenged me. And God's leading me along. And God is trying to nudge me to do something. Whether it's taking a step in faith or, or getting rid of a sin in my life. I procrastinate. I put it off. Why? Because here, here's the reality, church. When you don't have a sense of urgency about spiritual things. You know what that says about us? It's that we have a low view of God. Because it's not like God says, oh, it's, you can keep sinning for a few more months while you wrap your head around this. No. When God speaks to you, God expects you to be urgent. God expects you to move. God expects you to obey. All right? How many of you have kids where you're like, come on, you know, and you got to coax them along? Do you know how frustrating it is for our God to look down at his children and to have spoken to us, and spoken to us, and spoken to us, and we keep putting him off, and putting him off, and making excuses, and justifying. And I can't help but wonder if maybe there's someone here tonight who's had bitterness for months, and God keeps speaking to you, and keeps speaking to you, and you just won't let it go. That maybe there's someone here tonight that has sin in their heart, that they can't overcome by themselves. They know they need a mentor. They know they need accountability. They know they need someone to walk alongside them in an addiction situation or even some other sort of spiritual stronghold and you keep putting it off. You keep putting it off. Someone here who has anger issues, real anger issues that you need to address and you need to talk to someone about and you need to find biblical counsel for and biblical healing for, but you keep putting it off because you're too proud. Someone who has doubts in their mind that they need answered and they're struggling in their faith and they need some answers, but because you're too proud to address it, you keep procrastinating and procrastinating and procrastinating. 
Do we get the point tonight, church? That when God speaks to us, listen, may it be our, may it be our mindset that when God speaks, I respond. I don't procrastinate. I don't put God off because he is my Lord and he deserves my immediate obedience. I'm going to be urgent. I'm going to respond as soon as God speaks to me. Here's number three. Look at verse number three. Then he says this. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Be obedient. Be obedient. How many of you have heard the, the, the common saying, going in one ear and out the other? That's the exact opposite of what this, this command is. What had happened in this church, I want you to notice, um, in verse number three, God didn't say, now go study the Bible and learn something new that you haven't learned before. He says, remember. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. He's saying, um, hold on a second. You know everything you need to know to get right with God. I love what Dave Ramsey says. I can hear his, his Texas, Texan accent saying it now when he talks about money. He says, you know, money is just 80% behavior and 20% knowledge. You know, Pastor, I think spirituality is much the same. Most of us in here know everything we need to know to live for God and honor God and obey God. But our problem is not the 20%. Our problem is the 80%. We know everything we need to know. And we don't need to learn more about God. We just need to do what God has already told us to do. He says, hold fast. The idea there is don't let it go one in, in one ear and out the other. Hold it fast. Don't let it escape. Hold on to it. Don't let that message pass you by. Don't let that counsel pass you by. Because you know, what it, you know what's true, church, is that if we give it one day, it's easy to give it ten days. And it just escapes us. No, he says, hold fast. Hold fast. I wonder if there are some things, church, that we've allowed to go in one ear and out the other. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. The things pastor always talks about. I did a video interview with Janine, and, and we, were, we were joking about this, because uh, she and Virginia have this amazing testimony about being faithful in their Bible reading, and, and uh, eventually we'll share that with the church. And, and she said, you know, I heard pastor talk about it all the time. How many of you know? I mean, every message, right? Read your Bible. You know why? Because you need to read your Bible. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. And maybe, maybe tonight... You would stop letting that go in one ear and out the other. And maybe tonight you'd say, you know what? I'm done messing around. I'm done being proud about this. I'm going to find an accountability partner. I'm going to find someone who reads their Bible. And I'm going to say, you'd send me a text every day of what you read. And I'm going to send you a text every day of what I read. And I'm going to start reading my Bible. And he says, hold fast. Don't let those things escape you. I wonder how many times we've been challenged to pray and we just let go on with our lives as if that's some sort of spiritual suggestion. No, God has commanded us to pray or maybe dealing with sin. Or a lot of times we talk about giving and we say, oh, the pastor's talking about giving again. You know, he just wants our money. No, 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 my friend. God wants to speak to you tonight and he wants you to stop putting him off and start being obedient. Don't let it escape you. Hold fast. Hold fast. And then here's the last thing he said. He said, be repentant. Be repentant. Look at verse uh, number three. He says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. 
repent. What does, it, what does repent mean? It means to, to change our mindset about our sin, which will lead to a change in action. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Uh, so many times we're in denial about where we are, right? And what Jesus is calling this church to do is say, you need to understand that you have sinned against me. And you need to change your mind about it, stop justifying, and you need to change your ways. Repent. Now, I'm just going to shoot straight with you because Jesus shot straight with this church. Um, Jesus isn't messing around. I want you to look at verse 3. He says, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, if you don't change your ways, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Jesus isn't messing around. He's talking about his judgment, his, his discipline upon this church. He's going to severely chasten them for their sin and for their spiritual apathy. In fact, the, the terminology Jesus uses in this verse is so severe, it actually sounds a lot like the terminology he used in 2 Peter when he was talking about false prophets who weren't even true believers. That's how serious Jesus is. In fact, some people will go so far to say that he's talking to spiritually dead people who aren't saved. Now, I wouldn't agree with that, but that's how serious his language is. Do you see that in the text that Jesus isn't messing around? And, and a lot of times we see Jesus as someone who's long-suffering, which he is. But church, there comes a point when we ignore God so much that he has no other choice but to arrest our attention through some other means. And he says, listen, church, you need to repent or I will judge you. I will discipline and chasten you. Now, now many people would look at that and say, well, yeah, how's he going to do that? He's going to slay me for not reading my Bible? Listen, I can't tell you how God will chasten somebody. I can tell you how to avoid it. <laughs> uh, you know, listen, I would rather play the game of, I'm going to get right with God, than play the game, well, God's judgment's not going to be that bad. Are you with me tonight? Listen, God's being serious in this text, and he's saying you need to change your heart and change your life and stop going in a state of decline and start growing and honoring me the way you should. And if negative motivation isn't good enough and you like the positive side of things, good luck. Look at verse number four. Uh, he's got a positive message because he speaks to the people in this church who were honoring him who were what we would call the overcomers. And he says, verse 4, Thou hast a few names in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. It's speaking of they haven't compromised. And then he, he gives a couple promises to them. He says, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What, what does he mean in that, in that sense? He says that these people will share in Christ's triumph. That the, in the same sense that Jesus is victorious, we as believers will get to inherit his victory. We didn't win the battle, but praise God, because we have accepted him as our savior, we can share in his victory. And the same day that Jesus will declare his victory over sin once and for all, we will all be on the winning side and we'll get to shout and cheer and rejoice the same way Jesus gets to because we're on his side. And he says that those who overcome will get to share in my victory. And then he says in uh, verse number five, look at this. He that overcometh, 
the same shall be clothed in white raiment. What does that mean? It means we'll be identified as God's children. And then verse number 5, he says this, And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What does that mean? It means we'll be saved by God's grace. Now, I want to address this because I have to answer this question. He's not saying that if you don't honor God, then he'll remove your status as a saved child of God. He's not saying, I'm going to remove your salvation. Some people think that. Um, but what I really think is this. I read this in John 11 this week. That if you look in the New Testament, the principle is there that one of the clear identifying marks of God's children is, guess what? That they obey him. And it's kind of a foreign concept to the New Testament church that there would be people who've been saved by God's grace, who've been rescued from the punishment of hell, that would not be all in. That's like so foreign to the people who lived in these passages. And and so sometimes we can read New Testament passages, and it can seem really confusing, because he's like, he makes it sound like, if you don't change, you're going to hell, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think a lot of the Bible speaks to our eternal security, and that eternal life is actually eternal. But, but what he is saying here is that it's just kind of weird that someone would not be all in and would not be serving Christ and still be one of his. And I think the idea from verses 4 through 6 that should motivate us is God has done so much for us. God has saved us. We're saved by his grace. Our name will not be blotted out of the book of life. No, we'll be identified as his children. We'll wear white raiment. We will share in his triumph. And if that is true, if that is true, why would we ever procrastinate obedience to God? Why would we ever become so enthralled by things in this world that don't matter? If God has done this for us, how could we possibly leave him and be caught up in things that are worthless? So church, can I encourage you tonight? I don't know where God might have spoken to you, but I know he challenged me because this is true. It's our natural tendency to not grow in Christ, but to drift from Christ. And that sometimes God has to speak to us directly and say, hey, You need to address some things before you get too far. Because Fellowship Baptist Church is not exempt from being the dead church. We're not exempt. It doesn't matter what family you came from. It doesn't matter what God's doing in your life right now. You are not exempt from being these people. So what does it take? I love what Tom Rainer wrote at the end of his book. I think these, these fit us, even though he's addressing churches. He said, if you're a, a sick church, he gave three, three final pieces of advice. And I think this would help us tonight. Number one, acknowledge where you are headed. Ch- uh, church, can I ask you, are you heading closer to Christ? Or are you drifting from him? Where are you headed? I'm not asking you to look at last five years. Where are you headed right now? And the next thing he said was, be willing to do whatever is necessary. You know what's funny to me is that the problem isn't that we aren't urgent 
a lot of times. The problem isn't that we need to address sin in our life. The sin's not really the problem most of the time. Most of the time, Pastor, the problem is that we don't do anything about it. We just refuse to address it. Be willing to do whatever is necessary. And I think the third one goes right along with that. He says, get radical. Get radical. What, what did Jesus say in, in the New Testament? He said, if thy right arm offend thee, cut it off. Now, I don't think we ought to chop our arms off, but here's what he's saying. You know, maybe you should do something a little radical if it means your holiness. You know, Janine and Virginia's testimony, Janine and Virginia text each other about every day. You know what? Janine never read her Bible faithfully until 18 months ago. And for 18 months, she's read her Bible faithfully. Why? Because she, she and Virginia went out of their comfort zone and did something very slightly radical and, and invited some accountability into their life. I think maybe some of us could benefit from that. You know, there are people in this church who, who were struggling with sin and struggling with sin and addicted to something and, and struggling and struggling and struggling and they finally opened up about it and finally went to a trusted spiritual mentor and they've had victory over that. They've seen change in their life. Why? Because they had the courage to get a little bit radical. And some of you, you may not have issues like that that need such a, a what seems like such a radical solution. But, but church, I, I think I don't need to preach any longer. I think you know what you need to do. God's spoken to you. And really the problem is not, well, how do I do this? The problem is you just need to do something. And stop waiting for more knowledge and start focusing on the 80% of behavior that's actually the problem. 